big word. It's the word legalism. Uh, hang out in Christian circles long enough and, and you'll come across that word. But it's kind of a hard one to define. It's hard to define because it's so incredibly broad. Uh, and legalism takes so many different forms. So, you know, by way of illustration, you take something like, I don't know, ice, water, and vapor. They're all H2O, but H2O takes these different forms. Or ziti, spaghetti, and macaroni. They're different forms, but it's all, it's all pasta. So when you hear the word legalism, it takes a little while to kind of find out exactly what's being described. Because you're thinking it means spaghetti, but then somebody calls macaroni over here pasta, and you're like, oh, that, that means that too. So I thought I'd start off as we begin to talk about what legalism is, and we're going to unpack the scripture reading starting today. There are, and this is Michael Kruger, by the way, who's a theologian. I'm using his categories here, a great Presbyterian theologian. And he gives us three different categories or forms of legalism. In other words, when H2O does the ice, water, or vapor thing, here's what legalism can do. When you hear the word, it's used at least three different ways. So I want to jump right into a definition here. The first one is what we call salvation legalism. So when someone in Christianity says, ah, that's a legalist, or that is legalism right there, they might be talking about what we call salvation legalism. This is where people believe they're saved because of their good works. I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good guy. There is some kind of moral offsetting that's taking place. Nobody believes they're perfect. There is not a legalist in the history of the world that would say, I'm flawless and without sin. But it means there's some kind of moral offsetting taking place. Now, that moral offsetting, excuse me, can take one of two forms. It can either take what I call the scale form, which means something like this. My good deeds are outweighing my bad. I know I lie. I know I steal. I know I cheat. I know my thought life is a mess. But man, hey, I give to the poor, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm not killing people like this guy on TV over here. There's that scale form, right? That's a moral offset. Another kind of moral offset is what I call the faucet. That's where you know you're pretty bad. You would never try to do the good, you know, good outweighs the bad because, you know, that's not true. But you believe you can do a couple of extraordinary religious things that just turn the faucet of God's grace in your life. So, for example, you can say things like, well, I'm a really bad person. I've done a lot of bad things, but I've been baptized. See, that's a religious act that turns the faucet out and all the water comes out. And you feel like baptism is pouring out God's grace on your life. Or maybe I'm a really bad person, I leave a trail of destruction everywhere I go. But don't you know, don't you know that I'm a member of so-and-so church? Or I pray the Hail Mary, something like, something along these lines. Or I, you know, I do some kind of religious activity. And so that's salvation legalism. Salvation legalism is when we have some kind of moral offsetting. We believe that we're going to go to heaven because we're good people or because we've done something extraordinary that is salvation legalism. And again, the whole emphasis there is on what we've done. It's not at all on what God has done. That's the problem there, right? The second one we call rules legalism. So sometimes when people use the word legalism, they're talking about salvation legalism. By the way, salvation legalism, the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, that's where you find those big themes there. Rules legalism is when we take man-made rules and we elevate them to the level of Scripture, okay? So in Romans 14, there's what's called disputable matters, and that's where different Christians have different ideas about what food you should eat, what you should do with the Sabbath, and they take those ideas and they elevate them as if God himself came up with these. 
when in reality they're just our ideas and we're putting them high. That is called rules legalism. The Pharisees had a bunch of oral traditions. We're going to get into this. and One of them is right here in the passage. It's washing your hands. They would take about, uh, this is ceremonial by the way. They would take about an eggshell and a half maybe. And they would ceremonially wash their hands. They start from the fingertips and pour down. And the rest of the water would go from the wrist the other way. So you were ceremonially clean when you ate. That's nowhere in the Bible. That's nowhere in the Old Testament. Certainly not in the New Testament. That is somebody's idea that got a lot of traction in the culture. And then along the way, people just assumed, I guess God likes clean hands before you eat, you know. That's taking the rules of people, kind of elevating them up to the word of God. So sometimes when we talk about legalism, we're talking about salvation legalism. Other times in scripture, it's identifying rules legalism. Now the third category is the most difficult. And Kruger says this, and he's right about this. It's a hard category to define. We've all met people that would affirm Jesus is is, uh, our salvation. We're not trusting our good works to get to heaven. And we reject man-made rules But there is a tone of arrogance and just an extreme tone of judgmentalism, kind of looking down and being very unmerciful on people. And I think he's right. He identifies this as tone legalism. And this is the Pharisees, where the Pharisees, uh, if you said to the Pharisees, you're going to go to heaven because you believe, you know, you're a good person. Believe it or not, a lot of Pharisees in the first century would reject that. Uh, A lot of them did not believe that. They believed they'd go to heaven by the grace of God, so to speak. And if you said, hey, God's rule always overrules the, you know, the rules of people, they would say, amen, we're, we're in. But they're very judgmental, and they have a terrible tone towards other people, almost very self-righteous and arrogant. So sometimes when legalism is used, it's used as tone legalism. See, so legalism is a big word. Salvation rules tone. Again, macaroni, spaghetti, ziti, it's still pasta. And when you think about legalism, you have to think in these broader categories, depending on what we're talking about. Uh, regarding tone legalism, you know what came to mind for me? Uh, anybody like Dickens? I, Dickens is, he's a master, short stories. He's, there's this uh, funny story uh, called, uh, what is it, uh, Martin Cheselwit? Did you ever see the Cheselwit story? Cheselwit is an old guy, and everybody follows him around, waiting for him to die so they can get the inheritance. It's, it's a really funny story, you know? And they, they suck up to him constantly. And there's a, there's a really self-righteous person in the story named Pecksmith, Mr. Pecksmith. And Pecksmith is insulted by someone at a party. Uh, you're a hypocrite, Pecksmith, you know? And, and Pecksmith, he turns to his daughter, and he starts walking up the stairs, and he says... Just remind me to pray extra for this person tonight who insulted me. You know, it's like, it's like just arrogance and self-righteousness. Or remember when Lucy, you watch the Peanuts cartoon? There's a place where Lucy looks at Charlie Brown and says, I can just feel judgmentalism coming out at you right now, you know? That's what tone legalism is. So we have to be on guard against all three of these varieties. And what I want to talk about today is... Um, is legalistic tendencies. And by the way, before we do, all three of these have one thing in common, at least, and it's this. All three of these, we would say, are deviations of grace. Legalism, at its core, is when we deviate from the path of grace. It's when we stop walking the path of grace. Remember when the Apostle Paul says to Peter, he says, you are out of step with the truth of the gospel? Get that language. 
when you are out of step with the truth of the gospel, you are likely in step with a legalistic life. Again, there's a lot of ways to step off the path. You can step into traffic. You can step on the neighbor's plants. You can step in a lot. You can step in the curb. You can sprain your ankle. There's a lot of ways to deviate from the path because legalism takes a lot of forms. But at its core, when we're not walking in the truth of the gospel, that's when we find ourselves stepping into the legalistic patterns. All right, let me give you a start this week anyway. Legalistic tendencies. And I want to start with the first one here in the passage, and it's judgmentalism. Legalism in any form thrives on feelings of moral superiority, where we or someone believes they are morally superior to other people. Now look at verse 37 with me, please. And in the passage, Jesus was speaking. The Pharisees asked him to dine with him. So he went and reclined at their table. Now, really smart people who read this passage carefully pointed something out that makes a lot of sense once they do. And it's this. When it says, while he was speaking, they asked Jesus to dine. You remember what Jesus just said? He looked at the people, the crowd, and he just said this. He said, you are a wicked and adulterous generation. You know what the Pharisees thought? He's right. They are a wicked and adulterous generation. Go ask him to come to dinner with us. You see? Do you see why later on in the passage when it was read, you heard something like this? The lawyer said, you also insult us. Why? Because he already insulted the whole crowd, and now he's insulting them. And later on in the passage, remember the emphasis on this generation? Yeah, this is a wicked and sinful generation. And the point to appreciate is this. The invitation for Jesus to dine with them was in and of itself an act of judgment on the other people. Jesus here is being invited because the Pharisees are thinking maybe he's in solidarity with us. They're the problem. Those people over there are the reason the world is such a bad place. Maybe Jesus agrees with us on this. After all, he just sent a rebuke their way. And so when you see this in the passage, it just brings to mind one of the marks of Phariseeism, which is legalism just thrives on the feeling of moral superiority, where we believe we are kind of the exception to everything. And we feel like we're just morally superior. Now, there are a couple reasons you find in Scripture that people feel morally superior to other people. I thought I would just point out two real quick. The first one is, there is a tendency that people have, we all have this, to forgive our own flaws and not see them, and really see them in other people. You know that passage where your brother has a speck in his eye, and you have a beam in yours, and you're pointing out the speck when you have the beam, Jesus says, That means we tend to overlook our own sins and flaws and we tend to see them in other people more clearly. This is how I would put it. When you sin, it sounds like a whisper. When your friend sins, it sounds like a lawnmower, even the same sin. What you do sounds like 45 decibels, like 30 decibels, but when you see it in somebody else, it sounds like 120 or 150. We just have a way of kind of overlooking our own sins and our own flaws Uh, The church father, uh, Augustine, would say something like this. He said, this is a little phrase. He said, towards God, a heart of love, uh, a heart of flame. Towards my fellow man, a heart of love. And towards myself, a heart of steel. Now, what did he mean by that? He meant, I generally give myself a pass on everything, and i got to stop doing it. (laughs) 
One of the reasons we kind of feel morally superior to other people, we don't see, you know, our sins are in black and white, theirs are in living color. Our sins are in 10 decibels, their sins are in 200. We just have a way of being very hypocritical and self-righteous. That's what the Pharisees would do. A second reason is this. Some cultures just put different sins more on display. It just depends where you live in the world and what people are pointing out at the moment. And I think this one's underappreciated. In other words, there are sins in the first century that people don't even think are sins today and vice versa. And just depends on where you live. That's how big of a sinner you'll feel like. So a couple years ago, I went into a museum. And it was one of those really dark rooms, really cool dark rooms, you know. And they had like 15 display boxes. You ever see these? And each display box has its own light. So the light would shine down on the box and you'd go up and look at it. you could see it real closely. And it might be a sword and a helmet in this one and an artifact in the other. In that room, one of the lights was burnt out, you see. One of the lights was burnt out. And you couldn't really see what was in the box. And the point to make here is all the artifacts are in the room, but some of them are just more well-lit than others. In the first century... There are things that were big sins, like if you, uh, John chapter 8, remember the woman caught in adultery? The woman caught in adultery, that's a really big sin in the first century. But somebody pointing that out, that's a small sin, you know? Today, of course, those would be completely reversed. You, 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 you feel like a sinner, to use some more language here, to the extent probably that your culture identifies those things as sins. I got a couple of missionary friends that wrote a book about that includes a little bit of this topic right here. And uh, I'm not trying to offend anybody with bigger little... This is what he says in the book. He says, if you take the issue of plagiarism, in the West, plagiarism is a big sin. And I'm not marking on the morality of it. I, I don't think it's helpful, and I, I like the laws against it, so don't read it. He said, but where I'm from in the East, plagiarism is virtue because you're just borrowing people's ideas. <laughs> You see the difference? He said, now in the West, if you build a house around your fence, or a fence around your house, you know, you just fence your house in, he said, that's marking out proper boundaries. That probably makes you a good neighbor because everybody knows where the boundary marker is. He said, in the East where I'm from, that's a very selfish person. That's a taboo. You would never do that because you're telling people to get off your lawn. See, it just depends where you are. You walk into the room. Every culture has some boxes that are dark and other boxes that have the light coming down. It just depends where you are. If you watch sitcoms from the 1960s and 70s, if you're a misogynist, that will probably be overlooked. If you commit adultery, you cannot be a protagonist and commit adultery in a 1970s sitcom. On the other hand, today, those are reversed. You can be a protagonist and commit adultery in a sitcom, but you can't be a protagonist and be a misogynist. Now, if you think I'm saying we need to go back to the good old, you're completely misunderstanding what I'm saying. I'm simply saying different cultures highlight different things as sins at different times. And so Dick Van Dyke, George Jefferson, and Fonzie were in a culture that today's characters are not in. And you will be a protagonist. See, even in the last 30 years in the West, the spotlights on the different boxes have just moved a little bit. So there's a lot of reasons that we, we just overlook some things and, you know, kind of highlight other things. And that leads to a lot of judgmentalism. And that's my point. My point is different cultures put the spotlight on different things. 
Now, the problem with judgmentalism is this. A lot of us identify the problem with judgmentalism as sociological. That guy is so annoying. You just feel like he's judging everyone. That's sociological. Or it's political. If we're morally judging each other, we're not going to help everybody, and we want to help everybody. Both of those are true, by the way. Or, wow, it breaks community. Don't you realize when, there's social ju- when we're judging each other, that's going to break down community? That's also true. All of those are sociological. Christians would affirm all of those, but we'll up the ante a little bit and say there's another bigger reason. The problem with legalism and these feelings of moral superiority is because it keeps people from seeing their need of Christ. It keeps people from seeing their need for forgiveness. And so remember the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18? I thank you, Lord, I'm not like that sinner and publican right over there. I fast, you know, twice a week. I give to the poor. I pray twice a day, whatever, you know, it gives us moral offsetting. The problem is not just that he's an annoying person to be around, though I don't think I want to be around him. The problem is he's been blinded by those damnable good works. The moral offsetting he's doing, the feelings of moral superiority he's having towards this other person over there is keeping him from seeing his need of salvation. See, in that story, they're both lost. Only one of them knows it and one of them doesn't. So it is with the prodigal son and the elder brother in Luke 15. The father had two sons. Both of the sons were running away from a relationship with the father. One of them could see it, the other one couldn't. That's the problem of judgmentalism. And that's why we Christians say the first move towards the gospel is one of humility. The first step of becoming a Christian is putting away the feelings of moral superiority. That's why Jesus said, you know this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we we come to God like moral beggars. We don't come bringing our, our bag of morality. We don't come bringing our own righteousness But we come recognizing nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. And when we see that, by the way, what happens? If you're saved by grace and not because you're a good person, then we realize the the ground at the foot of the cross is level, so to speak. And all of a sudden, we are just one beggar showing another beggar where to find the bread. See, it puts away those feelings of moral superiority. You can't become a Christian until you make that kind of confession. Lord, I'm not better than other people. I'm not superior. All right, yeah, so my culture shines the spotlight in a different way. You know, that guy's acorn fell in the mud and it grew into a bigger tree. Okay, he's a bigger nuisance to society, fine. But in our heart of hearts, we are both in need of your forgiveness. That's that first step towards grace. That's that first kiss of grace comes in that form of humility. All right, number two is this. Number two is... Uh, addition, legalism elevates man-made practices to the word of God. We touched on this one in the triangle, remember? So in this case, they're, of course, doing it with that little hand-washing thing. Eggshell and a half full of water. By the way, they would carry these little jars around. These are oral traditions. It's just something that developed a couple hundred years before and caught on. And their thinking on this, we're going to get to later, their thinking was, just in case you are ceremonially unclean, you might as well cover all your bases. Never forget that Phariseeism and legalism usually starts in a pretty good place with a pretty good idea. But as they say, the road to hell is paved with good what? 
intentions. The intentions are good, right? But they, they lead the Pharisees astray. So you would take this water, you'd start with your fingertips, just a little bit, by the way, you'd run it down. It's not to clean the dirt off, just clean it down. Then you turn it, and it would run from the wrist down to the fingers. Jesus is not impressed with this. And so when he walks in, they're passing this little water around, and Jesus says, not for me, <laughs> you know? Now, before we get too far into the passage, there's something we should say at this point, I think. Not all tradition is bad, and not all tradition is unhelpful. Sometimes we read passages like this, and we think Jesus is like a tradition rebel. He just walked into a place, and anywhere he saw tradition, he's like, I'm going to break that rule, you know? That wouldn't, that'd be far from the truth. There's a lot of Jewish traditions that Jesus upheld. There's a lot of Jewish traditions that started out of good things that are not commanded. You ever heard of the Feast of Purim from the book of Esther? That's not commanded by God. But that's a feast that all the disciples would acknowledge. Jesus kept a lot of good traditions. He kept traditions when he was a baby. Not only circumcised on the eighth day, which is scriptural, but they take him to the temple and do all kinds of dedications, most of which you don't find in the Old Testament. Traditions can be helpful. The Apostle Paul said, here's some instructions here to the church at Corinth. And then he said to the church at Corinth, you know that I give my instructions like this to keep these traditions in all the churches. So Paul thought they were good. Traditions can be helpful. They're good. C.S. Lewis says this. C.S. Lewis, what was happening around World War II with C.S. Lewis is that they they were breaking all the traditions in the churches just to break them. For, for whatever reason. And C.S. Lewis argued that that's a bad idea, and he, here's why. He said, it's not dancing if you've got to count the steps. He said, if you walk into a worship service, you have no idea what's going on. You don't know what's coming next. You are more distracted by the change, and you can't really worship and focus on Christ and what's before you. And Lewis is right about that. Their traditions can be helpful. Now, what's the problem then? The problem is when we take our human traditions and we elevate them to where the word of God is. Now listen to what Elizabeth Elliot says, the missionary. She writes this in a book. I am in earnest about forsaking the world, says Elizabeth Elliot, but I'm puzzled about what this means. What do I have to forsake, a young man asks. Colored clothes for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that's not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instrument and don't eat any more white bread. You cannot, if you're sincere about obeying God, take warm baths or shave your beard. To shave is a lie against God and try to improve upon his work. Elizabeth Elliot goes on to say, does that sound absurd? She says, that was some of the most celebrated answers in the second century. So people believe in the second century that if you really want to walk with God, don't shave because you're lying against God if you do. You have to wear white clothes all the time. Don't eat white bread. That shows that you're not a disciplined person. You know, This happens in every generation, doesn't it? Where we take our human rules and we elevate them to the word of God. That's the problem. Again, we're not talking about applying the Bible. You can apply the Bible as you should, as rigorously as you possibly can. Good. When we take that, though, and we start imposing that on everybody else, that's when I think we're crossing a line and making a mistake. It's okay for a church to practice things a certain way and have tradition. We need that. But if we think every church needs to practice things just like we do, that's, the, that's when it becomes a problem. 
So the problem is when we act like those rules are in the Bible, and again, when we start, here's the problem. The problem with elevating man-made rules, I don't want to be just sociological, because I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, that's annoying when people, yeah, it's annoying when people do that. But there's a bigger problem. You know what we're doing when we do that? We're domesticating the law of God. In other words, we're thinking that God is more impressed with washing our hands the way we do a worship service than he is even with our hearts. That's a problem. So we domesticate the law. We tame it down, so to speak. And we misrepresent the character of God. I'll give you one more today, a third problem, and we're going to call it focus. Legalism gives attention to the externals at the expense of the heart. So we become obsessed with the outer person, and we, of course, neglect the inner person. You ever walk up to a tree? When I was a kid, I have this image. We used to hike in Vermont a lot when I was a kid. My brother and I, we'd be out for, oh, goodness, six hours in the woods, just get lost, you know, and walk around up there in the parks. And I remember there were times we'd be tired, and I'd lean against a tree, and it looks like healthy bark here. You ever do this? You're like, right up to the shoulder, you know? It's, it's healthy bark on the outside, but it's all rotten on the inside. You're like, oh, that's so gross, you know? Did a worm touch me or something like that? That's what's being described here in this passage. The verse 39, where, where the Lord says, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you're full of, you're full of greed and you're full of wickedness. You fools. You fools, by the way, is simply a, a biblical way of saying you don't understand the wisdom of God. You fools, did not he who made the outside also make the inside? That's an argument for consistency. God didn't just make the outside of you, he made your heart. So what's happening here is a veneer of spirituality. Uh, I want you to picture something with me. I want you to picture a family, and the family moves into a new home. And they're going to decorate the home. They want to get some oak bookshelves. And they go out and buy on the used market this awesome set of used oak bookshelves and they get it in the truck and they bring it home and they pay full price for it and then after about a week or so they had a plant on top of the oak bookshelves and a plant just leaked a little bit of water no problem she takes a plant off it's it's oak you you wipe it down everything's fine but then after a couple more days she noticed it's starting to bubble where the water ran down and so the, the lady walks over and she kind of takes her nail and she's like, what's going on here? And she, she pulls back and then she pulls a little more and she realizes this is veneer and the inside is particle board. Veneer gives the appearance of solid wood, but of course it's very flimsy on the inside. That's what Christ is describing here to about the Pharisees, the legalists, that they're obsessed with the outside, the veneer. And on the inside... They haven't given good attention to that. He describes this kind of thing that can happen in our lives. Where the outside looks authentic, but if you scratch beneath the surface, surface it's full of corruption. I'll close with a couple thoughts. Biblical Christianity puts an enormous emphasis on the heart. Enormous. That we're not just concerned about people walking through the, the religion, so to speak. We want hearts, my heart, your heart, to be engaged. For God to have our hearts, not just to do outward things. It's not, it's not enough just to be religious. It's not enough just to give things to the poor. It's not enough just to be nice to people and pick up trash and be a good neighbor. 
God wants us to do it for the right reasons. He wants us to be sincere in our walk. Puts enormous emphasis on the heart. Jesus said in another place, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Again, it, it com- in other words, as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's an old proverb from the book of Proverbs. Uh, you ever walk, uh, my, I have a dog, you know, and uh, th- if the dog barks, I, I, somebody might say, why did the dog bark? And I know the, an- the answer is, well, a cat walked by, or I don't know, a bird flew into the yard. Yeah, but why did the dog really bark? You know why the dog barked? Because he's a dog. That's what dogs do. <laughs> why did the lion roar? Because lions roar. Why did the cat meow? Right? Jesus would say something very similar. Why did that come out of our mouths? And we would say something like, because that person agitates me. And Jesus would say, no, it came out of your mouth because it was in your, your heart. Why are we thinking in these certain patterns that are very worldly? You're like, because I'm obsessed with social media. Well, maybe, but it's bringing out what's already in our hearts. Jesus puts an enormous emphasis on the heart. And our high priority as Christians is not just to give attention to the outside, but to give attention to the heart and really give our hearts to God. To seek the Lord and give our hearts with all diligence, we're told, from out of them is the issues of life. I'm going to close in prayer, and, and next week we'll pick up on these other marks of legalism. We've got another four or five that we want to explore. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for caring for us, thinking about us. You're always looking out for us as our Heavenly Father and our Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for our feelings of judgmentalism and moral superiority. That's an easy trap to fall into. That doesn't mean that some expressions of sin aren't more damaging than others. It doesn't mean that we don't fall into patterns or other people don't fall into patterns like that. That that can be true. But we have to say that apart from the grace of God, there go I. That apart from your restraining grace, transforming grace, we are capable of many of the things that we would accuse other people of. So deliver us from that kind of hypocrisy. Today, Lord, I pray you'd help us to at least make this step. To make a step towards confessing that we are, we are far bigger sinners than we care to admit. But also make the confession that Jesus is a far greater Savior than tongue could tell. We look to you. We ask you to strengthen us. Help us to walk in grace and not deviate from the path of grace, walking in line with the truth of the gospel. Glory belongs to you in Christ's name. Amen.